0: Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Dr. Nathaniel Geiger, Assistant Professor of Communication Studies at Indiana University. Nathan studies, among other things, how the public responds to communication around climate change. We'll talk about the recent history of advocacy on climate change and how recent movements like the youth-led climate strike might shape public attitudes towards climate policy, along with public attitudes about the activists themselves. I'll also ask Nathan about communicating with a wide range of audience about climate issues, and much more. Stay with us. Okay, Nathan Geiger from Indiana University, Uh, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: So Nathan, we're going to talk today about uh, climate activism and uh, particularly about uh, the recent protests and movements that we've seen uh, led by young people and others uh, in the United States and around the world. But before we get into the substance of our conversation, I want to ask you the same question that we ask everyone who comes on the show, which is how did you end up working on these topics, working on environment and climate change?
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's a great question. And I, I've thought about this a lot, um, you know, what actually motivated me. And I guess my sort of, you know, naive answer, you know, before I thought about this as much as I had would be just to sort of question, you know, why isn't everybody engaged with these things? Because to me, it just seems like something that is an important issue that, you know, we should all be involved with. But I think um, sort of thinking about, you know, my life and what was different um, that motivated me to get engaged with these things in the first place. I think, um, you know, I sort of grew up and became aware of of the issue of, Um, climate change and environmental issues. And I think I, you know, had sort of learned about these things and gained an understanding of them. Um, So I already sort of had this concern. And then after I graduated from college, I took a a year off before I started grad school. And at the time, I was sort of thinking about what I wanted to do in grad school. And um, I wasn't really sure, you know, I sort of had this passion for environmental stuff um but just sort of this odd weather just following me around everywhere in 2011 so first i was um i was in texas for the summer and it was just it was the hottest summer on record it was um you know regularly 100 and 105 110 um, for just days weeks months at a time it was the i think like just completely destroyed the record for number of days above 100 degrees in austin And then I went over to Thailand to teach English. And as I was starting to work on my grad school applications, um, there's this huge flood there that was, um, I think, the most expensive flood to ever hit an industrialized country. It's one thing to hear about this in the news, but it's another thing to be there and to have the area that you're living in, you know, basically underwater for two months and to have school canceled for two months. And I think this sort of... After seeing this stuff, um, it sort of made me aware on a more visceral level of how crazy it was that we weren't really taking adequate action to address some of these environmental challenges and, um, you know, what sort of negative effects this was going to have on our society in the future if we didn't step it up.
0: Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So as I mentioned, we are going to talk about climate activism. We're going to talk about the climate strike movement led by Greta Thunberg and other young people around the world. Um, But before this most recent round of uh, activism on climate change, there have been certainly other major efforts in the past to raise the profile of the issue as a political and policy priority. Can you give us a little bit of background on what you see as some of the most important events leading up to today?
1: Yeah, certainly. So I think that there's definitely been, you know, sort of increased public mobilization over the past few years um, with regard to climate change. We sort of saw um, 10 years ago when it came to, um, you know, there's this pass and trade bill working its way through Congress, you know, eventually didn't end up passing.
0: Right. This was the 2009 Waxman-Marquis bill.
1: Right. Right, exactly, and I think you know some some scholars um, basically claimed that one of the main sort of limiting factors that might have stopped it from passing was the lack of significant public mobilization around taking action on climate change, and so I think that's that's started to change over the last five years or so. Um, we've seen you know several large marches in major cities, um, such as in New York City back in twenty fourteen. There was a march there for action on climate change. I saw the, the figure of a uh, number of participants at around 400,000. And then there's similarly another march, uh, same name, um, People's Climate March uh, that happened three years later in DC. And I actually went down there for that because I was living in Pennsylvania at the time. So we uh, there's a bus that was chartered and uh, a bunch of us went down there and we had some some July weather in April, which was which was kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, that was a that was a pretty huge march. And more recently, I've sort of seen um, the sun sunrise movement seems like they've been doing putting together some great stuff in terms of uh, putting pressure on politicians and the media to, um, you know, raise the priority of this issue.
0: yeah, great. That's helpful. And you know one of the things that that I know you've looked at closely is how, uh, climate protest movements affect public opinion towards the protesters themselves and towards the, the climate strikers themselves in the case of the climate strikes. So why why do you think that question is important? Why should we be paying attention to it? And what are some of the things you find about public opinion towards uh, those who take part in uh, these activist events?
1: Right. So I think to um, to start out with um, talking about why, why public opinion is important, um, just to sort of reiterate that, um, um, you know, this is sort of the perspective looking at the idea that grassroots engagement might be one of the key factors that is gonna help um, determine whether or not significant climate change policies are passed. Um, the extent to which there is this grassroots engagement or not is going to, is going to put pressure on, on politicians to, um, you know, to get something done or perhaps not to get something done depending on the nature of the engagement. Uh, but another thing is is it's also important to look at how these forms of sort of large-scale public engagement actually influence other members of the public who aren't engaged themselves. so does mm-hmm. it does it sort of um, you know help motivate them to them, you know them themselves get engaged or does it turn them off and sort of have potentially have the opposite effect? you know sort right. of scare them off from the idea of taking action on climate change? and so that was that was sort of what we were looking at here was what are the effects of um, some of these marches on other people who are not previously necessarily getting engaged, and so in this work we focused on two particular marches. We focused on which happened in back-to-back weekends in 2017. We focused on the People's Climate March and the March for Science, which happened on uh, back-to-back Saturdays in 2017 in April. And so basically, we looked at. Um, we did what's called a trend study, which is basically we looked at a sample of people immediately before the marches, and then we looked at a sample of people drawn from the same population immediately after the marches. We wanted to look at how, in what aspects public opinion might have changed before the marches versus after the marches. And so what we found, uh, we found some sort of potential changes um, that seem to have occurred potentially as a result of the marches and we found some aspects in which public opinion didn't change. And so to start out with um, talking about the potential changes, um, we found that after the marches, climate advocates, climate activists, people who are engaged with climate change seem to be perceived less negatively after the marches versus before the marches. And in particular, this seemed to relate to people's perceptions of marchers as being arrogant, dictatorial. Um, All those perceptions decreased after the marches. The second thing that we found that there was a change in was we found that after the marches, people were less pessimistic about uh, the ability of large groups of people in society to get together and work together on solving large problems like climate change. And interestingly, this change occurred, the you know particular subset of the population in which this change was the strongest was actually the opposite of what we had expected. So we had anticipated that people who consumed liberal media might be the people that were most likely to gain sort of a more positive outcome from the marches, right? Because liberal-leaning liberal, me- liberal leaning media might be basically um, covering the marches more positively. They might be showing the marchers in a more favorable light. Right. But interestingly, what we found was when it came to this pessimism being reduced was it was actually the exact opposite. We found that consumers of liberal media before the marches, they were more optimistic than consumers of conservative-leaning media. But after the marches, we found that difference had gone away. So it was actually the people consuming the conservative leaning media that had sort of improved the most on decreasing their pessimism. And so this was sort of sort of interestingly, sort of this depolarizing effect, suggesting that the marches were able to break through some of this sort of these sort of echo chambers and media bubbles and actually connect with a different audience.
0: Yeah. That's super interesting. And we're gonna I'm going to ask you later uh, more about that, sort of communicating to different... You know segments of the public and and what might be effective there um but before we sort of go forward i want to ask you uh, about the results of this research in terms of how it affected people's opinions on the need for collective action or public policies or you know voting for politicians who see climate change as a priority um so so what did you find in terms of advancing that goal of sort of accomplishing or implementing uh public strategies to address climate
1: yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And so, so I should start out by saying that um, some of these uh, outcomes that I had previously discussed seem to be um, seem to be predictive of potentially later changes in willingness to take collective action or willingness to support policies. And so, we anticipated here that we might find some changes on those outcomes in these studies too. And in our particular studies, however, we didn't we didn't find any immediate changes in those outcomes, which is sort of interesting. Um, I think it's it's to some extent, um, you know, showing the limitations of these marches, but I think it's also interesting in that we don't really have an accurate sense of the time frame in which these psychological processes change. Yeah, And so, you know, this is sort of saying, okay, immediately after the marches, people were not planning necessarily to go out and take more action, but it could very well be that, you know, they might not be going out to, to planning to go out and take action because the opportunities haven't presented themselves yet. So it could be that if we had gone out and asked these people, um, you know, collected another survey three or four months down the road that we might see some changes. Um, it's really hard to say. So I think this sort of speaks to the need that we need to, you know, we need to do more research to look at the time frame in which people get motivated to take action? Um, what motivates them? And might these changes that we saw lead to action maybe down the road?
0: Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And one quick technical question that I, I should have asked you up front, and I, I'm just realizing now that I, that I omitted, um, the survey that you carried out, was it like a nationally representative sample, or was it kind of a convenient sample? Can you talk just briefly about the sample group?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think this is really important to think about. So what we did here was we used um, we used a survey common survey collection software that's commonly used in the social sciences called Amazon's Mechanical Turk. And so this is not a fully nationally representative sample. Um, the sample respondents tend to be, on average, a little bit more liberal than the general public. And a little bit younger than the general public. But what's helpful about using this sample is that, you know, we, we, we sort of know this up front, but we can control for these factors. We can sort of control for the fact that, you know, this sample might be biased in certain ways. And importantly, although we might have a slight underrepresentation of conservatives and of older people, we do have quite a few political conservatives and quite a few older people in our sample as well. So by being sort of aware of the limitations of this sample, we're sort of able to, you know, able to look at, you know, how is this influencing um, people across the political spectrum or across the range of ages, educations, et cetera.
0: Great. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thanks. Um, So let's move on now and talk about the kind of most recent in the news um, uh, climate movement, uh, which is, I think it's safe to say, the climate strike movement, at least internationally, the climate strike movement has been... You know, quite large, growing rapidly in the last year or so. Um, Greta Thunberg, uh, the teenager from uh, Sweden, is sort of the most prominent uh, leader of that movement. Do you have any intuition as to how a youth-led movement might be received differently by the public than previous efforts who were led by adults, you know, folks like Al Gore uh, or other prominent uh, sort of leaders who are, are of a different generation? So how might that generational factor affect things?
1: Yeah, I think that is really interesting, a really interesting question, and I would love to see more empirical data on on this, which I imagine will, you know, potentially be coming out. Just sort of off of the top of my head, I one thing that I find to be really interesting with regard to the youth-led movement is how people portray um, climate advocates and how it varies based on who is getting involved. And so, I think what you often see is you often see that um, people will portray um, those who want to take action on climate change. So if you're if you're somebody who's trying to discourage taking action on climate change, one way that you might have to sort of demobilize action would be to say, oh, these people who are promoting action are bad, nefarious people, and they're doing this for bad reasons and i think that um that really falls apart when you're seeing you know teenagers young people um being the people that are sort of the standard bearers for this stuff that that just it just doesn't work to call them you know bad people or saying that they're you know they're manipulative and so what we're seeing instead um and what you might expect to see is is that if you're going to portray them negatively you would sort of fall back on calling them naive or saying yeah these people are well-meaning but they they just don't really know what they're talking about. And so that's sort of an interesting um, transition in, you know, how the marchers or advocates might be portrayed negatively. And potentially, um, you know, calling them naive might actually not be quite as effective as saying that they are, you know, manipulative, arrogant, or, you know, people that want to control you in some way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, so one of the things that I saw coming out from critics of, of Thunberg and, and other young people was the idea that somehow their parents might be manipulating them, uh, in, in some way. And the other, and it's also worth pointing out that, you know, the, the logical, uh, explanation that you just gave, which makes a lot of sense, uh, doesn't necessarily stop people from being cruel, uh, on, you know, places like social media, you know, so there were, there were lots of really, uh, quite, Quite gross things uh, said about Greta Thunberg and some other activists on on Twitter. Of course, Twitter is a place where gross things tend to happen more often than than they should. Um, but uh, but yeah, that was that was one thing that I observed in sort of the public reaction to to her and to the the climate strikes.
1: Yeah yeah, I think it's it's always a little bit disappointing to um, you know to get into some into some of these dark corners of the internet. But I I sort of see it as inevitable, unfortunately that. You know, whenever anybody's pushing for positive change in society, that there will be people that, you know, are trying to find a way to criticize them. So I think it's yeah. sort of important to recognize that that's going to happen up front and figure out if you are the person trying to promote that positive change, how can you defuse that criticism the best you can?
0: Yeah, for sure. So an- another thing that I observed, so here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I live, uh, there was a climate strike Um you know, a couple months ago, and uh, and I, I went down to check it out, and you know, I was really heartened by the amount of attention that the topic was getting from young people. It's it's cool to see so much interest in such an important topic. Um, one of the things that I noticed and was a little surprised and slightly concerned by was kind of the direness of some of the messages, um, that were, that were conveyed. So there was a, a, there were actually a couple young people who were holding signs that said, uh, things to the effect of, you will die of old age, talking to me, an old person, uh, and I will die of climate change. Um, so that type of dire messaging, you know, it's not necessarily supported by, by the research that's out there. Um, but it is, quite motivating, I would imagine. So what's your sense of how those kind of dire messages would be received by by a broad audience and what their effect might be?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, it sort of um, seems that with some of the rhetoric um, around climate change, that we're starting to see this emerging rhetoric that's sort of um, talking about generational equity, um, intergenerational justice, as uh, one of the democratic candidates for President Mayor Mayor Pete, as we call him here in Indiana, he he talks about intergenerational justice, yeah. and I think we're starting to see this sort of um, this sort of discussion, you know, emerge a little bit more about, you know, having you know sort of this potential generational gap um, in terms of values or outcomes, and you know, I'm not really sure the extent to which that's something that people see as as a you know main factor in society, but I think certainly that. Having these sorts of messages saying, oh, if you're from the older generation, you're not going to be affected by this. I'm going to be affected by this as a member of the younger generation. I think that this this is something that might exacerbate this sort of divide or make this sort of generational identity more salient. And so I think that, you know, it could potentially have a number of different effects. It could, on the one hand, be really motivating to, to young people. Um you know, if you see yourself as part of this group that is being under siege by this other group, um, that's something that, you know, in general, the research shows tend to has tends to have an effect, but it's also sort of an interesting question because, um, you know, most, I mean, everybody who is young in our society right now all have parents and, you know, most people who are older in our society have children or grandchildren who are, who are younger. And so it's sort of interesting, um, you know, As people are concerned about their children or grandchildren, um, would this sort of messaging promote their concern, or would it be, you know, would would they perceive it as too confrontational, and maybe it would sort of turn them off, which I think is is an interesting question, which could be thought about a little more, and maybe some data could be collected on that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that I mean that leads right into the next thing that I wanted to ask, and maybe the answer is the same, which is that we don't know yet, and we need more data. But but the thing that I was wondering about is, um, you know, I think a lot of people uh, are wrestling with how to walk the very fine line between communicating that chi- the, the climate change is a is a big challenge, it's a big problem, but also not being overly apocalyptic, and you know perhaps. Um, turning people off in a couple different ways like the apocalyptic messaging could um, you know maybe inflame some who are inclined to not want to take action on climate change but they could also give the idea that um, you know that we're doomed and there's like nothing that can be done and it's all over if we don't you know cut emissions to zero by the year um, 2030 or 2040 or whatever whatever year you want to choose Um, so how do you think as a as a communications expert, how do you think about striking that balance between communicating the uh, the importance of the issue, but also not, um, you know, scaring people off or, or making them turn away?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think I should start out by saying that there is some disagreement among um, communication experts about what the best ways to handle this. I think that some people's opinion is that we shouldn't be, you know, truthful with the public because the public can't handle, you know, sort of the truth that it would be too scary and turn people off. And I disagree with that. I do think it's important to to be honest with people and to, you know, tell them, you know, sort of this is a dire situation. This is something that is important. Um, but I also think it's important to balance that message with um, sort of a particular sort of positive message in the sense of actually talking about how people like them can get engaged and actually make a difference. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the biggest issues with with climate change is that it's seen as this huge issue that's you know sort of this global issue. And a lot of people feel sort of powerless to be able to do anything meaningful about it. And so um, one of the things that we have focused on in uh, some of my research with some of my collaborators is we've looked at talking about how people can get engaged with groups in their community or in their neighborhood to work together and make a difference. And so we found that talking about these sort of community level action attempts where people are, you know, getting together as a group, whether it's, you know, installing community solar panels on buildings in a small town, or whether it's working together as part of a neighborhood group to encourage um, local politicians to take more action on climate change. These are things that sort of actions at a level that can be inspiring to people. And also along that note, sort of hearing about the process of previous success stories um, seems like it, it has potential to be really powerful. So, so often we hear about, you know, how problems in the past got solved, but we don't hear so much about the process by which it got solved. We don't hear so much about people actually going out and doing things and, you know, taking this hard work. And sometimes when we do, it's framed as, oh, this is just the government solving this problem. But often it's, you know, often it's local grassroots efforts that are also making an important difference. And so uh, my perspective would be that it's really important to talk about those grassroots efforts in the past and the positive effects they've had so that people feel like they can go out and, you know, also get engaged with these sorts of things. Yeah,
0: that's really interesting. Um, So... Last question before we go to our final question, which we call Top of the Stack. So this question, I alluded to it earlier, is about communicating to different audiences. So how do you think about different communication strategies for communicating with different segments of the public? We've talked a little bit about sort of intergenerational differences. Um, What do you think about uh, the importance of communicating to you know, other important groups that differ along maybe political or sociological lines uh, on the importance of climate change as a a policy priority?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that any good communication effort starts with starts with knowing one's audience. And importantly, um, sort of thinking about a lot of us, you know, when we're having these conversations with people that disagree with us politically or otherwise, you know, our first inclination is to think about what motivates us and try to persuade the other person based on what motivates us. Right. And obviously, you know, from a communication strategy, we need to, we should be focusing on not what motivates us as people who are, you know, deeply passionate about the environment, but we should be focusing on what motivates our audience. And so um, sort of a general communication strategy that I think is, Really effective. Um, Catherine Hayhoe talks about this a little bit. She's a um, she's a climate scientist at Texas Tech who uh, communicates with evangelical communities. And one of the things she talks about is that it's really important to you know start your communication with an attempt to connect with your audience uh, with values that you both share. So something that motivates you that you t- you hold as an important value that your audience will also hold as an important value. And in general um one value that some of my colleagues empirical work has shown um can be effective at communicating with people across the political spectrum is communicating about responsible management of the environment that's something Mm -hmm. that both political liberals and conservatives both tend to agree on that this is an important thing that we should be doing and so starting out by framing a message in that way um can be effective at communicating with people um when it comes to more specific audiences, it often may come down to figuring out what motivates them. And a lot of the time, uh, communicating with someone even across the political spectrum that, you know, it's, we may have more in common with them than we think, but we need to, you know, sort of sit down and think about what are some shared values that we hold, and how can I communicate with them in a way that um, would convey our shared values. And so I think, um, I'd recommend definitely to anyone interested in that, checking out Catherine Hayhoe. I think she does a great job in talking about that. Um, you know, she herself is an evangelical, so she has the power to communicate with evangelicals, but I, she also points out that if you personally are not an evangelical Christian, if you're, you know, let's say Jewish or Muslim or atheist, um, that is not necessarily a shared value but perhaps you have other shared values you can you can talk about with evangelical christians in that case you might not talk about you know your faith you might talk about something else that you share right. in common
0: right yeah that makes sense and she yeah she's super impressive and really great at that communication stuff. People should really look her up. Um, and uh, and that brings us to our final question, which is, uh, you know, what else should we look up while we're, you know, trying to find new and interesting things to enjoy about the environment or energy or, or public policies? Uh, so this is what what is at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack that you would recommend to our listeners. And I'll start uh, with a recommendation that's about climate communication. And it was a short article that I read recently by uh, Ted Nordhaus and Alex Trembath at the Breakthrough Institute. Uh, It was a piece called, Is Climate Change Like Diabetes or an Asteroid? and um and i i like the framing um you know the an asteroid either hits you and it destroys you or it doesn't and you're fine uh diabetes is really different it can be uh, managed but it can't really be solved in terms of completely eliminating the problem certainly not quickly um diabetes is definitely bad it's definitely a problem and it could be deadly but there's a big difference between you know, managing it by eating carefully and managing your insulin versus not being careful about it and maybe losing your eyesight or, or losing your leg. Um, so I thought it was a really compelling framing of the way to think about, um, climate change as a, as a public policy problem. And I'd, you know, definitely recommend people check it out. Um, so how about you, uh, Nathan, what's on the top of your stack?
1: Yeah, that's a really great recommendation. That seems really interesting, actually. Uh, what I've been reading over the last couple of weeks is, um, Naomi Klein just came out with a new book, um, On Fire, and I've been been reading that. It's sort of a combination of, she talks a little bit about, um, you know, some of the sort of contemporary political climate right now, and then she talks about, she um, also publishes some of her essay, previous essays in this book, and I find um, Naomi Klein's um, writing, personally, I find it very thought, always thought-provoking, um, you know, whether or not you agree with everything she says, I think it... She does a really good job, I think, of um, getting me to think about things in a different way. And I think she was, at least among sort of North Americans, um, she was really powerful in getting people to connect climate change with other related issues in a way that, you know, many most of us in North America weren't weren't previously doing. Um, you know, back ten years ago, you know, especially you know people were thinking about climate change, they were thinking about polar bears. And the Arctic and all this stuff. And Naomi Klein, you know, has been saying for, for years, no, this is, this is not just about polar bears. This is about, you know, politics. This is about immigration. This is about public health. This is about the type of government that we have in our country. And I, f- I just find her writing really inspiring to sort of, you know, talk about the way that climate change is connected to everything else. And, You know, she has some depressing moments in her book, but then, um, you know, it's also really powerful that she she talks about, you know, ways that people are getting involved and making a difference.
0: Yeah. Great. Well, thanks for that recommendation. Yeah, I I think I'm more on the side of, you know, I tend I don't always agree with her sort of policy prescriptions uh, for what to do about these things, but I totally agree that, um, you know, she's always thought provoking and, and definitely brings up important intersections that we should be thinking about. Um, Well, with that, Nathan Geiger from Indiana University, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio, talking about climate change, communication, uh, and, and so many other fascinating issues. Thank you. We really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.